1: Welcome to The Mini Brick, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines results and controversies from the tennis world today is Monday April 4th perhaps the topic most near and dear to our hearts here at Crack Rackets and certainly the topic it feels like we've discussed most frequently on our shows since their inception back in August 2017 is the idea of the generational shift we've seen unfold over the past couple of seasons on both the ATP and WTA tours now certainly things have been most pronounced on the WTA side. You look at who has won the most recent major titles in the women's games, certainly the names that start to come to mind. You think of Naomi Osaka's of the world, the Ashley Barty's of the world, the Sonia Kennan's of the world, certainly of late Iga Swiatek, Emma Raducanu, the titles that they have won. Each of these players have ascended to their primes in the post-Serena Williams era of WTA tennis, right? So I think talking about the generational shift that's happened in the women's game, a little bit easier to make the argument for. On the flip side, how frequently have we talked about generational shifts? Have we talked about lost generations of ATP players during the Big Three era? And certainly from a Grand Slam title standpoint, the major titles in the men's game still dominated by Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal. I would argue the era of Roger Federer, probably that window has shut given all the knee issues he's had, given the age. Federer is now at. That said, certainly you look at the past 15, 20 years of professional men's tennis. Certainly those three names have dominated in a way we have never seen three players dominate before. However... While it hasn't been most pronounced at the slam level, if you start to look at the Masters 1000 level events, you start to look at the year-end championships, you start to look at the rankings themselves, certainly the next wave of high-end ATP talent has gone about solidifying itself at the top of the men's game. And certainly Daniil Medvedev capturing the 2021 US Open perhaps epitomizes the generational shift happening in men's tennis more than anything else. Of course, Rafa goes on to win the 2022 Australian Open title from two Sets the love down against Daniil Medvedev, but certainly with Medvedev capturing his first Slam title. Team did it the year prior at the U.S. Open, and guys like Alex Virev, Stefano Tsitsipas, Matteo Berrettini, each reaching major finals over the past 24, 36 months. Feels like the argument about the generational shift happening in the men's game has become a little bit easier to make because while there all were, while there, excuse me, will always be the camp of well, nothing matters but the Grand Slams, and I don't care. If he wins a 250 title, a 500 title, a master's title, wake me up when he wins a Grand Slam title. Certainly that subsect of fan will always exist. And I'm not here to bemoan or demean that fan. To each his own. Whatever you're a fan of in the sport, you enjoy tennis how you enjoy tennis. Who am I to tell you how you should be enjoying tennis? Now, I will say this. If you only value Grand Slam titles, you're pretty much saying the only weeks that matter in the professional tennis calendar are the eight weeks of Australia, French Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Now, I would vehemently disagree with that assessment, and I think we've founded a daily podcast here at Crack Rackets on the premise that that is an incorrect assumption to make, that those eight weeks are the only eight weeks that matter in professional tennis. But certainly Coming out of a sunshine swing. And here we go, folks, full circle. We can now get into today's show. Certainly coming out of a sunshine swing, in particular on the women's side, that saw Igush Fiantek sweep. Both titles, Indian Wells and Miami becoming the youngest female ever to do so and extending her win streak, by the way, and this is perhaps the most ridiculous number. She's now won 17 consecutive matches, folks, as she wins the title in Doha, Indian Wells, Miami back to back to back to ascend to the number one ranking in the world. And of course, Iga Swiatek doesn't even turn 21 years old until the end of May. She can't legally drink in the United States. That's why we saw her enjoy the celebratory pizza on social media, which, by the way, is exactly what I would do if I won a big title. But again, Swiatek 17 consecutive victories now, culminating obviously in the Sunshine Sweep. She wins Indian Wells. She wins Miami and obviously joins a historic group of players in being able to accomplish that Feet uh, Certainly watching the f- success Sviantec had and certainly seeing the players she goes up against, whether it's Bedosa at Indian Wells, whether it's Osaka in Miami, just time after time after time, Iga Sviantec answered the question. And certainly given the retirement of Ashley Barty before this Miami Open event begin, it felt like a foregone conclusion. And certainly Iga Sviantec only needed one win to ascend to the number one ranking in the world. But you look at the way she's done it to win Doha, to win Indian Wells, to win Miami, back to back to back, to have your two losses on the season be to the eventual Dubai champion, Yelena Ostapenko, 7-6 in the third in the round of 16 in Dubai, and then to have it be, you know, a loss to Danielle Collins in the semifinal of the Australian Open. I could not think of a more direct path, a more symbolic path, a more justifiable path to the world number one ranking than what Iga Świątek has accomplished over the past month and a half of play. And certainly, again, you look at the top 10 of the women's rankings right now, I do think it's a, a little bit easier to make that argument about the generational shift, right? Because we've already seen so many uh, uh, so many, excuse me, young players under the age of 26, 25 years old have success at the Grand Slams. certainly, again, uh, I think that generational shift argument probably a little bit easier to make on the women's side, but why am I bringing up the generational shift? Because I think it is now conclusive, and I have never seen a consensus form, but, but, uh, from the tennis community about any player the way all of us are now on the Carlos Alcaraz bandwagon, and how can we not be after the 18-year-old Spaniard becomes the youngest player ever to win the Miami Open title, one of the youngest players ever to win a Masters 1000 title. And by the way, with this result, Carlos Alcarez now rapidly running up the rankings, not even 19 years old. Carlos Alcarez number 11 in the live rankings. That's a new career high. He's moved all the way up to number two in tennis abstracts, ELO ratings. And again, not a single person, whether it be on tennis Twitter, whether it be anecdotally, the people I speak to in my life who are casual tennis fans, but don't live in the bubble quite the way mini break listeners and us on tennis twitter do the unanimous consensus unanimous consensus is that carlos Alcaraz is a future superstar that never happens in our sport. And I think anytime someone has success, whether it be a Daniil Medvedev, whether it be a Stefano Tsitsipas and Alex Zverev prior to all of the allegations, obviously now no one celebrates uh, Zverev's success, but I'm talking about early Alex Zverev or even the Berrettinis of the world, the Caspar Rudes of the world, you're always going to find the negative spin out there. You're always going to find at least one person very frequently. It's our friends, David Gertler or Alex Banchilla. That's why they're such interesting people to speak to because they're not always going to give the Consensus perspective. They're going to zig when everyone else is zagging. And yet, no one's zagging. Not a single person is zagging on Carlos Acaraz. There's no one out there saying, eh, the second serve's attackable. Eh, there's some weaknesses in his game. We have consensus, folks, coming out of the sunshine swing, and it's on both men. It's in both the men's and women's game. Again, I think we're all in on the Igush Fiantek bandwagon. We're all in on the Carlos Alcaraz bandwagon. Those are the two things I want to discuss briefly here on today's show. I want to talk about their performances at Championship Weekend at the Miami Open. I want to talk about the players they beat as well. It is going to be a shorter show here today. Uh, And why is that? It's because we've got some fun stuff planned this week. I I, am—two things. One, I am— recording today's podcast live in my room and not my room in Indianapolis at CRHQ. No, folks, I am recording it in my bedroom in Franklin, Michigan, as I am home visiting my parents. We've just had a long stretch of weekend broadcasts in the college world and obviously with Indian Wells and Miami, Australian Open, a bunch of pro stuff as well as such. I just haven't had that opportunity to come home uh, at all in 2022. And I will say, and again, I know some of you get angry with me, and please keep leaving comments on iTunes, whether it be about the quality of our microphone, whether it be about the rants that from me that you find incoherent, whether it be the guy who tells me I need to not drink an energy drink, not drink a Coca Cola, that I need to slow down before I record these podcasts, A, to that fan. You have no idea how correct you are. And to hear that from you was greatly appreciated because it validates all of the other people who sometimes say to me, hey, Alex, you need to slow down and maybe speak a little bit more clearly. Yeah, you know the jumps you're trying to make from one point to another, but you talk so fast that sometimes we lose you as listeners. All of those comments are appreciated. And you can obviously tweet them at me, at AL Gruskin, or leave them in the Apple Podcast comment section, Spotify. I'm not exactly sure how their comment section works, but immensely grateful for all of you who do take the opportunity to leave comments and I know some of you get annoyed by the personal anecdotes. Let me just say I'm very fond of my parents. I like them. Um, Dare I say I love them quite a lot. lot. I'm not sure there's anyone in the world I love more than them. We're also very good friends. And I know that's stupid to say because, you know, in theory, you like to think everyone is friends with their parents. Everyone loves their parents exponentially, right? There's no limit to the amount of love you have for your parents. At the same time, what I've realized, the older you get, 23, 24, 25, 26, as you come off the payroll for your parents and you just become more friendly. And you just become friends and peers and they joke around with you and they treat you like an adult far more seriously. And I've been fortunate my parents have always treated me like adults. But that said, uh, all of this is to say I am home this week trying to hang out with my parents a little bit, spend some time with them, and shout out to my mom who said, Alex, if you're home and I don't get a shout out in the podcast, I'm kicking you out. So shout out to you, mom, who's cooking delicious dinner right now. Imagine being an OB-GYN, full-time office, you see patients all day, and then your favorite child comes home and you're like, don't worry, I'm cooking you dinner as well. That is a loving mother if I have ever met one. But all of that said, I am home this week. Why do I point that out? It's because because I am home. We're going to try and have some fun, try and do some other things. It's going to be a laid-back week, uh, or at least the plan was for it to be a laid-back week. And then we saw the content that we're going to be able to produce. So just a quick preview for all of you listeners, what to expect this week. Obviously, uh, we'll go by level here. In the pro world, I want to talk about briefly about the Miami Open Finals here today. And then we want to do award shows the next two days. As you know, after Miami, after Indian Wells, that sunshine swing, it feels like we have hit the one third mark of this professional tennis season. And so, what I want to do over the next couple of days, and it may not be as immediate as Tuesday, Wednesday, but over the next couple of days, I'm going to have conversations with my friends, David Kane and Gil Gross. And I think both of them are aware that we're doing this already, but if they're not, I'll be sure to text them as well. We're going to do award shows through the first third of the season. We're going to name our winners, our our losers, the biggest storylines. We're going to have some fun with it as well as we just reflect on this opening third, right? This first third, this hardcore stretch of time. Of course, we'll talk things about the top 10, 15, 20, 25 club through the first third. We'll talk about our analytical winners. We'll talk about our anecdotal winners. I just want to offer you a progress report on where things stand because obviously with you know Marrakesh and Houston happening this week on the men's side and Charleston Bogota happening on the women's side, we're transitioning to the play court season, and it's going to happen in the snap of the fingers. And by the way, that wasn't a sound effect, folks. That was a real snap from your boy, A.G. Uh, it's going to happen in a snap of the f- fingers. And so obviously with that in mind, want to put this first third, this hard court opening sprint Uh, of the 2022 season in the rearview mirror. We'll talk about our biggest winners, losers, etc. Again, going to do that this week with Gil Gross and David Kane. Of course, going to continue to cover all the action happening in the college tennis world, whether that be in the Division I men's or women's game, we'll have our weekly SEC Big Ten specific breakdowns. We'll also, of course, do our more broad live shows Tuesday nights, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern time for the women on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. Of course, you've also got 7 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday live on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel where we talk about all the men. But that's the plan this week. And again, I know that was a long intro, outro, not the most coherent either. I'm running on minimal hours of sleep, folks, as I drove in from Indianapolis yesterday. Nevertheless, Again, just wanted to give you all a brief outline of what to expect here throughout the week. And I'll try to do that more frequently here in the season as I know sometimes our podcast can get a bit sporadic all of a sudden you've got, you know, seven things on the American men and you're you're like is this an American men's themed week? No one told me this was going to happen. So again, one of my promises here to you. First third of the season done. We're going to get more organized, going to get more coherent, just provide a plan for all of you listeners so that you can uh, expect just more consistency from us here over the next couple of weeks. But with all over the next couple of weeks and through the remainder of the season, I should say. But with all of that said, again, my agenda to today, very specific, very narrow, because certainly we will talk about the big picture stuff with Carlos Alcaraz, with Iga Swiatek on our award shows over the next few days, right? If you're offering up your 2022 players of the year to date, I think we all agree unequivocally that Iga Swiatek is the answer on the women's side. And, you know, with that in mind, let's talk about how good eagle looked this past weekend. Simply put, she looked exceptional on her way to a 16th and 17th consecutive victory. Again, you look for her since the start of Doha. Let's go through that Doha run. Let's just talk about the players she's beaten over this stretch of time. So she loses a set to Victoria Golubic, first round Doha, then straight set wins over Kasakina, Sabalenka, Sakari, and and Kanteve. So she's beating three top 10 players, all in straight sets to win the title in Doha. You know, good win over an informed form good win over Golovich to get the tournament started. Then she goes to Indian Wells. She drops first sets in her first three matches. Now she has played nine matches subsequently since that first three, and most notably perhaps round of 16, 4-6-6-2-6-3 was the last match she dropped the set in, round of 16 Indian Wells to Angelique Kerber. Since that time... Nine consecutive victories, all of them in straight sets. She's played one tiebreaker. During that stretch of time, it was a 7-6 first set over Simona Halep in the Indian Wells semifinals. She was pushed to five all or further just once during that stretch of time. Uh, Excuse me, just a second time during those nine matches as well as second set. Jess Pagula, a match Fiontech, ultimately wins 6-2, 7-5 against Naomi Osaka, who is one of only two women's players in the game right now. To be holding serve. Over 80% of the time, Sriantec not only doesn't face a break point on her own serve, she gets a break in the first four games, uh, excuse me, first six games of the match. She breaks Naomi Osaka in all three service games of Osaka in the second set. She cruises to a 6-4-6 love victory over an Osaka, who had flashed the sort of exceptional, I'm the best hardcore player in the world level of play that she showed to win her four Grand Slam or Hardcore Grand Slam titles throughout the course early here in Miami. And yet, Svantec's just on another level right now, whether it be physically. Again, for her to win 17 consecutive matches and not drop a set in nine in a row and perhaps perform the most difficult task in all of tennis to win that sunshine double, I mean, again— It's a testament to the 20-year-old's physicality. It's a testament to just the athleticism she's been blessed with. And, you know, spending a lot of time with pro coaches, college coaches over the past couple of months. And, you know, as long as we've been doing this here at Cracked Rackets, they really can't emphasize enough the word talent needs to be erased from one's vocabulary because talent is such an arbitrary concept. Everyone is talented at certain things. For Shviontek, it's just, it's the culmination of skills she has. It's the skill set. For Shviontech. the combination of athleticism, power, fluidity, creativity, topspin, high percentageness, which isn't a word, I know, efficiency is what I was looking there for high percentageness. Let's try efficiency this time. She's just exceptional. I mean, early in her career, the weakness was attack the forehand with pace, right? Well, certainly the Naomi Osaka serve might be the biggest weapon in women's tennis. You would argue throughout the course of the match, particularly early on, she tried to serve to the Iga Svantec forehand. It just didn't work. Iga was able to absorb the ball, you know, return it with depth, with pace herself. And then, you know, Osaka really struggled on serve in this match. You look for Naomi Osaka. She only ends up making 51% of her first serves against Iga in the final. That just wasn't going to cut it because the moment – Iga got to look at a second serve she made Fiontec pay uh she made Osaka pay Osaka won just one you know 33.3% of her second serve points and over 50% or right around 50% of her service points were started with a second serve Iga dominated her Iga's broken serve here in 2021 and I know this number is ridiculous in 2021 she is breaking serve 54.2% of the time She's breaking serve over half the time. Once every two service games, she is going to break you. Naomi Osaka, let's see, is 6 first first set, 6-love, 6 so 16 games. She she, she she served eight total times. She's broken four of the eight times. Again, the best server in the world who is, didn't serve her best on that particular day, but the best women's server in the world, Naomi Osaka, and Iga Swiatek's 50% break percentage translates into this match as she breaks four out of the eight times. I mean... If you give her a hanging second serve to the backhand wing— she is putting that ball away, whether it's early on the rise down the line, whether it's early on the rise cross-court, whether it's just, again, for Osaka, uh, you know, or for Sviantek, the depth she was able to get on her return of serve, and then she had Sviantek on the move, uh, then she had Osaka on the move, excuse me, Sviantek never hitting more than two balls in a row in the same direction, keeping Osaka in the outer thirds of the court, preventing her from doing any sort of dictating on the baseline. I mean, again, Sviantek. Was exceptional. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. She simply put was exceptional in each and every match she played. And again, you look at this Miami run. Certainly, you get Golubic again. You know, again, it was a three-set result in Doha. She beats Golubic two and zero this time. Madison Brangle just doesn't have a weapon to hurt uh, a Schiavonek with. Zero and three Schiavonek win, but three and one against Coco Golf in the round of sixteen. 3-3 three and three against an informed Petra Kvitova in the quarterfinals. And by the way, again, by that point, you're playing your 10th match now in you know a 20-day stretch. And for her to have the success she did in Doha as well, it's a lot of miles that are accumulated on the 20-year-old's body here to start the season. Not a single whiff of wear and tear on Iga Sviantek, and again, 2-5 and five over pagula and then 4-0 against Naomi Osaka, who really struggled with her return position in this match. No doubt she was trying to take the ball early on the rise, because look, Sviantek won over 80% of the rallies that went above five shots. If... The, the longer the point went physically, the longer and further Osaka got extended in the outer thirds, the more likely it was that Svantec was going to win the point. And she was just so efficient at the starting points off. Again, whether it be uh, with her first return, whether it be with her plus one ball, just absorbing the aggressive Osaka returns. And there were times when Osaka was probably a bit overly aggressive on the return of serve. But why was she that? Because she couldn't win a freaking return point because Iga was all over her because Iga had her moving from so, you know, to quote Ariana Grande, she had Naomi Osaka going from side to side. Like, I can't imagine a more efficient performance from Shiantek, who throughout the course of the match, again, is up a break four two uh, through the first six games of the match, holds that break the rest of the way. She then breaks Osaka right out the gates to start off that second set. No letdown, foot on the gas, foot on the throat. Let's get over the finish line, get this match done. There's also just a joy that Sviantek is playing with. There's an innocence to her game. For sure there is. She's not as, you know, again, what is the single negative thing someone would say about Iga Świątek. I don't think there's a single negative characteristic out there when describing her personality. She's bubbly. Yeah, she's a little bit awkward in the way every tennis player is a little bit awkward. You have to be a little bit awkward. You're on your own out there. You're on court 6 hours a day by yourself. It's going to turn even the coolest of people, yourself and myself included, a little bit weird. I just that's going to happen. You get used to talking to yourself. Maybe that's why Doing a daily podcast on my own has come, I don't want to say so naturally because, again, I don't know if I'm being self, uh, self-aggrandizing self enough here in this podcast. I don't think I've complimented myself enough yet. But think about all the times you've talked to yourself on a tennis court. If you just put a compilation of those clips together, wouldn't you have a podcast about your game? And I feel like I was doing that my entire life from ages 12 to 17. Uh, again, that's the sort of awkwardness I think every tennis player deals with. At the same time, you don't see that with Svantec. I mean, I mean, you do see it with Svantec sometimes off the court, but on court, there's just a poise, there's a fire, there's an aggression she plays with, there's a spirit she plays with as well. Talk about someone who loves being a professional athlete, embraces and thoroughly enjoys the success that comes with being a successful tennis player. It's just a delight to watch Svantec, and again... The most humble personality, she's not braggadocious, she's not flashy, she's not... there. There's, again, I cannot think of a single negative quantity, uh, quality or quantity. Quality in particular, though, to describe Iga Sviantek, who has been, uh, again, amongst one of the five best players of the world since the tour resumed in August 2020, and she's 51-14 and 14 over her last 52 weeks. That's a ridiculous 78% win percentage, but you look again, and I know I've talked about this number a bunch... You look for Iga, since play resumed, when the, since the pandemic started, August 2020, she's 71-21. She's winning 77% of her matches over a two-year stretch of time. And again, if you're ranked outside the top 20, you're just not going to beat her. She's 57-11 overall, the, her last four losses to non-top 20 opponents. Ready? Last five. You'll like these names. Ostapanko, 7-6 in the third. Danielle Collins, who goes on to make the Australian Open final that tournament. Ostapanko, again in Dean Wells last year. Paula Bedosa, Tokyo. By the way, Paula Bedosa, now a top 10 player. Own Jabbour, three sets, Wimbledon. Own Jabur now, top 10 player. So even her last five losses to players ranked outside the top 10, uh, outside the top 20, are all to players who are now either inside the top 15 or perhaps even further than that. She's just beating, she's just better at this game than everyone else right now. And again, Her skill set is so complete, she's a comfortable volleyer, she gets better at each little detail of the game as well with every... Uh, every new playing experience she's exceptional and it, it's absolutely exceptional to watch and again, a credit to Naomi Osaka who was clearly feeling some joy, some comfort uh, just being back out on court and you know again in front of this Miami crowd who was supporting her and it just looked like she was having fun again which far too frequently unfortunately for Naomi Osaka, you know you you wonder how much fun she's having out there or how much pressure versus how much pressure she's putting on herself out on the tennis court again, Osaka didn't play poorly in the first set. She didn't serve particularly well, but she was as aggressive as she needed to be, and Svantec was just able to absorb that first strike, did not allow the power tennis of Osaka to overwhelm her. Didn't let it for Kvitova either. Didn't let the line drive tennis of Pegula do anything either. And again, Osaka, who you look for in Miami. Osaka dropped one set on her way to the Miami final. It was a 4-6, 6-3, 6-4 set. uh 4-6 first set in the semifinal to, to a Belinda Bencic, who's also played some exceptional ball of lane and is striking the ball so purely uh, and is as fit as she has ever been. And is actually healthy and has played six months in a row or you know nine months in a row for the first time in God knows how long. At the same time, Again, I don't know which side of the analogy is supposed to be better. Whichever it is, you know, everyone else was playing checkers. Iga was playing chess, or everyone else was playing chess, and Ego was playing checkers. They're just two different sports right now. Iga, that complete of a game, she can turn defense into offense, I think, better than anyone, and again, the difference between her, Bedosa, Conteve, Sakari, all these players who are really solid, really physically gifted, she just has weapons and a heaviness to her ball that those other players don't, and a comfort as a volleyer, and just, again, an unequivocal deserving world number one with the clay court season coming up. And again, it feels like she's going to have some opportunities to make some moves in that clay court season, but she's your only player to rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage right now in the women's game. There's a reason for that. Iga Svantec is exceptional right now as she makes it 17 matches in her own. Again, steals the Sunshine uh, sunshine Swing. And I know some of you are wondering, well, where's the stats? Who else has won the Sunshine Swing? And Iga's the youngest to do it since when? Well, rest assured, we'll get to all of that in the award show later this week, although... Again, when you're joining lists of companies like the Celases, Serenas, and Sharapovas of the world by age 21, I mean, again, I've, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Before the age of 22, the best player in the history of women's tennis, unequivocally, is Monica Celis. And obviously, tragic you know, tragically stabbed on court, was able to continue her career later on, but we just never know what that would have been. But she won, what was it, seven of eight Grand Slams in a two-year stretch before the age of 21? Or like, just again, every record you think of, Monica Seles was winning everything when she first walked out on tour. Then Martina Hingis, who also, before the age of 21, won just about everything there was to win in the women's game. And it's just, you know, again, Celis won 95% of everything. Hingis uh, Hingis won 90% of everything. And then you get to the next tier of Sharapova and Serena, who won about 80 to 85% of everything they competed in and were making slam finals or have won a slam title and, you know, one, two, three in the world by the time they turned 21 years old. And then you have the next tier, which is like the Justine Ennens, Kim Kleisters of the world who are winning 60% of their matches and doing special things, but not that, you know. Well, I would argue that is the elite of the elite, but perhaps not the top point oh 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 one percent that those first four names were. I'll tell you this, Iga is now a bit more accomplished than the Ennins, than the Kleisters of the world by the time they turned age 21. She's not quite on the Serena tier, on the Sharapova tier, certainly not at the Sellis or Hingis tier, but she's not far off. And that's ridiculous to say out loud because, again, Iga Swiatek doesn't turn 21 until the end of May, and she's just unequivocally the best player in the world right now in women's tennis. So what a weekend, what a sunshine swing uh, for Iga Swiatek, who, again, uh, is your Miami Open champion. Straight set victory for her over uh, Naomi Osaka, who uh, we will talk about more, and we talked about plenty uh, last week, but we'll talk about on the award show. Let's move on to the men's side, and I'm do this one a little bit quicker. I mean— What's left to say about Carlos Alcaraz that hasn't already been said? And I know we've talked about him so frequently, but everything I just said about Iga, all of that uh, applies to Alcaraz as well, because I think when you look for Carlos Alcaraz, again, uh, 28, still 18 years old, doesn't, you know, doesn't turn 19 until what? I think May of this year doesn't turn 19. Yeah, until May 5th. God, May's just the month to be—May has replaced August uh, as—well, actually— Who's born in the month of May? Trivia question for all of you at home. I want you to say it out loud in your head. I can give you the ones that pop into my head right away. May birthdays: Iga Świątek, Carlos Alcaraz, Novak Djokovic, Andy Murray. That's the only argument I need to say. May, other than October, May is the best month uh, to be born in from a tennis perspective. I mean, it's a joke what Carlos Alcaraz has done. And again, for him to get to number eleven in the world by eighteen years old, it's a testament to how special he is. And you know, again. In the last 52 weeks, he ranks fourth in break percentage. In the last, you know, in, in the 2022 calendar year, he's number one amongst all pro players on the return of serve. And you saw that manifest itself against Casper Car- uh, Ruud. Uh, certainly, I thought in that final where you know Rude breaks Alcaraz right out the ba- uh, right out the gate, and you know uh, takes the 3-0 lead in the first set, and yet. Did you have any? Uh, did anyone have any doubt that Alcaraz wasn't going to work his way into the match? Wasn't going to find his rhythm? Wasn't going to start, you know, finding a little bit better rhythm on the return of serve? And look, Casper Ruud's got a slingshot of a serve. I mean, that ball explodes through the court. He's number eleven, I believe, right now in hold percentage over both the last uh, over the last fifty-two weeks. And I want to say top ten in hold percentage in terms of twenty twenty-two specific results. I mean it ditto, by the way with Hubi hercats who's a top 10 you know top 10 in hold percentage amongst top 50 players these are two guys with elite first serves now Cal- carlos alcaraz wasn't able to get a break on Hubi hercats but he was able to get the break back on kasper ruud and you know again was able to get the break back uh, get a second break get uh, two more breaks excuse me in the second set as well and that's just foundationally the worst carlos alcaraz starts a point at is at neutral and, yeah, like he, his second serve hangs. Everyone's second serve hangs. And, you know, you look for Alcaraz. He's top 20 in hold percentage here in 2022, still 29th in hold percentage over the last 52 weeks. But, you know, I think the one weakness people would have pointed out early in Alcaraz, you know, 16, 17 years old when he's ascending up the challenger ranks, is that his second serve hangs a little bit short. Well, that happens to everyone. But again, against Hubi Hercats, he wins 70% of his second serve points, fights off all three break points he faces. You just look at the serving stats for him here in Miami. Not broken against Martin Fuchovic. Not broken against Marin Cilic. Broken once against Tsitsipas. Once against Smenovic, Not broken against Hercats, Holds uh, Broken just twice against Kasparud. Well, if he's, whole, if he's breaking serve better than everyone else— and now he's going to start holding serve at this rate as well. I'm sorry. For lack of a better term, the rest of the tour is f- They are. If he's going to play this game mathematically, you're just not going to beat him. Because athletically, the guy is just a specimen. I mean, his ability to track down the extra ball, his ability to come up with these miraculous on-the-stretch, on-the-slide... Beats of strength, whether it be the lob, which has obviously become his calling card, that drop shot lob combo is laughably effective, uh, even in the professional ranks, whether it be just his on the stretch passing shots, whether he blitzes you down the line, cross court, you think you have him in a cross court forehand rally, he's going to beat you to the spot, use his quick twitchiness to hit the winner down the line, hit the winner cross court, just, the guy can do freaking everything. And again, I know we're, we want to poke holes, and you know it's it's not as fun. Well, it, let's just celebrate everyone, glass half full for everything. This is not astute analysis to say the guy who just won Miami is really freaking good. Thanks, Alex. This was a fun usage of five minutes. But what else is left to say about a kid who's not even nineteen years old? undefeated in ATP uh, title matches, 18-2 overall on the year. His only losses: is five sets, 7-6 in the fifth to Berrettini in the third round of Australia, a three-set loss to Rafael Nadal in Indian Wells in a match that was played in an actual windstorm monsoon. Your two losses are to two top-ten players You just won your first Masters 1000 title. You're the youngest player to ever win the Miami Open title. And, you know, right there with the Nadals and Michael Changs of the world as the youngest to win a Masters 1000 title, period. And just, you know, again, the entire tennis world is rallying around you. Players, coaches, fans, media, everyone is on the Carlito bandwagon right now. And I will say this. If you are an American commentator – You do not have to call every third shot of his on fuego. We're not going to talk about the undertones of doing that. You just look like a fool if you are. I would like to say you don't have to mix in and prove to the entire tennis viewing world that, hey, I know some Spanish terms just because you're calling a Carlos Alcaraz match. I just think, and I'm not going to call it a specific name. The tennis TV person who was doing that this weekend knows who they are. I thought they sounded extraordinarily foolish. But the excitement surrounding Carlos Alcaraz – That's as real as it gets, folks. And again, we talk about the strengths, the speed, the forehand, the athleticism, the competitiveness, how well-rounded his game is. What's the weakness? Like, what, we're going to build up his confidence too much? Is there anything you've seen from Carlos Alcarez in his first three years to think he is – at all distracted, at all focused on doing anything but becoming the single best tennis player in the world he can be. No. I mean, yeah, we saw the Men's Health photo shoot. Anyone who gets asked to pose shirtless for a magazine will say yes. Like, find me the person who will say no to doing that, and I'll find you the liar. Uh, Outside of that, I just, I don't see the distractions. And he's got Juan Carlos freaking Ferrero, former Grand Slam champ and number one player in the world surrounding him. This guy's legit. There's a reason we're all deeming him the next big thing. And again, I think everyone got excited about Zverev early on, and certainly Medvedev, summer of 2019, and Yannick Sinner, 2019, 2021. There have been people who have come by, you know, the Chapeau FAA experience. People have gotten excited for them, particularly when Chapeau had his big run in Canada at the Masters event when he was extraordinarily young. And, you know, there's been blips where Demon Hour plays great tennis in Australia, and we all get fired up for that. This feels more real than anything we've seen in the past five to ten years. Just the consistency, the relentlessness the aggression and aggressiveness and athleticism of Carlos Alcarez. He's the real deal, folks. And again, you look for him, you know, to be broken, what? few He earned six victories and he was broken fewer than six times on the week. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? That's just ridiculous. And yeah, I, I mean, again, I, I would argue... I mean I don't I don't know what th- what's left to argue like yeah you don't want to overhype someone sure okay is that what we're now saying is well let's not overhype him like that's our biggest concern is we're going to get in his head okay if that's our biggest concern let's make the bet on Carlos Alcaraz, and I think there's a reason everyone in the tennis world can. Again, it's not only his ability to punish short balls. He beat Kasper Rude yesterday in the forehand-to-forehand exchanges, the depth he shows on his backhand, and just, again, he has you as your his opponent in fear because of the drive he's able to produce, the spin he's able to produce, and then he mixes in the drop shot, and then you think, alright, I'm going to hit an approach shot, but it better be a freaking perfect approach shot because if it's not, he's going to pass me. And, like, again, he beat Casper. Rude forehand to forehand yesterday. Do you know how freaking hard that is to do? This guy's legit. And again, last 52 weeks, not a top 25 leaderboard, but you look here in 2022, Carlos Alcaraz, one of just four players on the ATP tour to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage. It's Alcaraz, Rude, Zverev, and Nadal. Yeah, it's a fun group to be a part of. And Carlos Alcaraz, again, number two in the ELO ratings, number 11 in the live rankings. It feels like we're just scratching the surface, and I think that's why everyone's so excited because you just do some natural growth projections. You're like, man, three years from now, what the hell is this kid going to look like? It's going to be extraordinarily exciting, and again, we get the ascension of Iga and Elkaraz simultaneously. Buckle your seatbelts, folks. It's going to be a really, really fun next coming, You know, next decade of tennis as we see again the generational shift finally coming to fruition. I think we're starting to know who the next the stars of the next decade are going to be. But with all that said, again, your winners in Miami, Ika Fiontec Carlos Alcaraz, epitomizing the generational shift we've been discussing here at Crack Rackets. Now, again, we want to offer some broader thoughts on what we've seen through the first third of the season. We're going to do that via some award shows. We'll have David Kane and Carlos Alcaraz, uh, again, Carlos Alcaraz, David Kane, and Gil Gross, not Carlos Alcaraz, on the show this week to hand out some awards, have some fun, talk about some of the serious takeaways as well, and project, of course, what we expect to see over the next uh, few months during this clay court swing. And again, two ATP events, two WTA events, countless challengers happen this week. We've got all week to get into that action here on this show. And again, I'm coming to you live from my parents' house in Michigan. So if there is a delay in any of the podcast releases, I do apologize for that fact. It's because, as I mentioned earlier, I really do enjoy hanging out with my parents and, you know, again, the friendship that has formed. Between all of us. And so if I am spending some time with them, if the podcast are, excuse me, if the podcasts are late, it's because I am enjoying some time with them. But of course, with all of that said, a huge shout out to super producer Daniel Westhoff, as always, for the veteran f- job he does day in, day out, making all this content possible. A huge thank you to our friends at Tennis Point as well. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point. From all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot. And that is not this podcast, but I'm about to record a great shot intro-outro, so if you want to hear more about the Challenger action, go check out that pod, but you know what we say. That's the break. Leave it all in, Westoff. We will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.